This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're looking this morning at verses 6 through 13. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. With chapter 26, as we've been Going through the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26, we come to uh, the beginning of the end. We come to uh, the beginning of Jesus' uh, approach to the cross, beginning with, in verses 1 and 2, with Jesus' announcement uh, to his disciples that um, after two days, the Passover would, would come and then Jesus would be delivered up to be crucified. And then looking at it on the human side, the plot that was afoot among the leaders of Israel to arrest Jesus and to put him to death. And then that brings us to our passage this morning, verses 6 through 13. Hear the word of God. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon, the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to your word this morning, hungry, wanting to be fed, in need, looking for your provision Father, we pray that your spirit who inspired and preserved these words for us would apply them, uh, drive them deeply into our heart, feed our souls with them, and increase through them our love and our devotion to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of Sundays ago, uh, Mike preached from Luke chapter 7 about the woman there who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and then wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus said of her that she loved much because she had been forgiven much. Memorable passage. And it would be understandable, as we come to a passage like this, to have a little bit of a sense of deja vu both in that passage and here, and in the parallels to this in Mark and in John, we have uh, Jesus being anointed with oil. 
And there have been those that have said, well, this happened and the details got mixed up and it comes out in different ways in the different Gospels. I would disagree with that. I think what we have here is a completely distinct, uh, separate incident from that on which Mike preached just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yes, there are a couple of similarities. Both involve a woman pouring oil on Jesus. Both involve a man named Simon uh, as the host. However, as we look at the differences, we will see that they are far more numerous and quite significant. First of all, as to the host, yes, in both cases he's named Simon, but in Luke it is Simon the Pharisee. And here in this account in Matthew, as well as the parallels in Mark and John, the host is one Simon the leper, uh, presumably cured, uh, else they would not be in his home. Uh, Simon was a very common name in Judea at that time. Of course, we're familiar with other Simons that we know of in the Bible, notably Simon Peter. Uh, who is this Simon the leper? Well, it's possible that he was the father, maybe, of uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. We don't know. Uh, it's possible even that he has died, that he's not even there. Uh, but the house was still known by his name. You think, well, that sounds rather far-fetched. No, it's not. Uh, out of seminary, Barbara and I lived in a small town in South Carolina, and we bought a house there. And everyone would say, oh, you live in so-and-so's house. We would say, no, it's our house. But no, they knew it because of the previous occupant or whoever lived there first. And they remembered that. And they'd say, well, you, lived in, you live in so-and-so's house. Well, no, we don't. We live in ours. Well, it's that kind of thing. And it's possible that this was just a designation for the house. It's possible. But it could well be that Simon the leper was present there as part of this feast taking place. Well, let's look at the criticism. In Luke, the host criticizes Jesus receiving the woman's attention. Well, here it's not the host who's being critical, but rather the disciples themselves. Let's look at the woman. In Luke, the woman is described as a sinner. She is a woman who has a bad reputation. Well, here the woman, as John 12 tells us, is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The teaching is different. Jesus teaches in Luke, as, as Mike uh, preached, on the response to Jesus of love because of the forgiveness of our sins, the teaching that arises out of this occasion is quite different, as we'll see, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. And then the timing. Luke's account of this anointing of Jesus is much earlier in Jesus' ministry. John 12.1 tells us that this event takes place just six days before Jesus' final Passover. We say, well, Luke has it here after the uh, triumphal entry. Well, he does, because Luke's concern, or, or Matthew's concern here, uh, Matthew has it here, because he's concerned with the theme. As we've seen, a series of passages here, each anticipating the cross, each pointing to the impending death of Jesus. And so Matthew is concerned not as much with the timing, but with this theme of preparation for the death of of Jesus, And so he places this event in this list of events that tell us that the cross is coming soon. And so there's every reason here to believe these were two different events. Luke's event earlier in Jesus' ministry, and then the account Matthew describes coming shortly before the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. Well, you think, okay, well, did people just come up and splash oil on Jesus all the time? No, 
But it was certainly not unprecedented for someone to honor a house guest in this way. It was, uh, in fact, Jesus uh, draws attention in Luke's account to the fact that his host Simon the Pharisee had not anointed him with oil. Uh, It was also not unprecedented for someone to honor an esteemed rabbi or teacher in this way. And so, no, it didn't happen every day, but it's not certainly not unprecedented or unthinkable that Jesus would have been anointed with oil not only once but twice and quite possibly more than that. And so we see that. Now let's look at the passage itself. In this passage, Matthew focuses obviously first on Jesus, but he also focuses here on Mary of Bethany and her action. And so as we study the passage, I want us to do the same. Let's look at her and consider three observations about what it is that she did here when she anointed Jesus with oil. First, it was an extravagant act. It was a lavish, it it was an expensive act. We read that Jesus was there at this house of Simon the leper, and a woman comes up to him, again, John identifies her as Mary, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment or oil. Uh, The flask of alabaster, probably a a little vessel with a narrow neck. The the oil would be placed inside. It would be sealed. And in order to use the oil, the neck of the vessel would be snapped. And then the oil could be poured out. The oil itself uh, was not common olive oil. This was a very expensive oil. This was nard. In fact, it was so expensive that it would have cost an average laborer about a year's worth of his pay to buy it. And think about that. Think of uh, buying some, uh, some substance that would cost you almost a year of your salary. That's the kind of expense. That's the level of lavishness that we are looking at here. And so she has this flask, she comes up to Jesus with this, and she breaks the neck of that vessel, and she pours out this oil on Jesus' head. John says that she poured it out on his feet, uh, most likely both, and maybe running it from one end to the other as Jesus reclined at the table. And that would be the typical posture for being at the table, to recline there. So while... Jesus is there, she takes this vessel, and she pours out this oil on his feet. This was a a lavish, an extravagant act of devotion to Jesus. But you know, love can be extravagant. And at times, it should be extravagant. We see other cases of this kind of thing in the scriptures. Uh, One that came immediately to mind as I was thinking about what the woman did is that of Second uh, Corinthians eight, in verses one and following. Uh, Paul is commending the churches of Macedonia for their lavish generosity. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, curiously enough, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You see, that's giving at its best. They wanted to. 
they begged for the opportunity to, and even though they were suffering poverty themselves, they were able to give generously out of love for God's people. That, too, was extravagant giving. We think of the widow that Jesus watched who came and put her small offering into the collection box there in the temple, and Jesus commends her because other people came up and gave, in some cases, perhaps large amounts of money, but only a relatively small percentage of what they had, possibly what they could have given. But this woman, even though in terms of absolute value it was not very much, it was all she had. It was a gift of faith because she was going to have to trust that the Lord would provide for her even as she gave everything she had to the Lord. That, too, was lavish giving. That was an extravagant act of devotion to the Lord. And we're familiar with that, certainly in our own day. Uh, the young man who goes out and buys a diamond engagement ring for his fiance, spending money he can scarcely afford because he loves the woman that he wants to marry. Uh, even giving in the church today, people who give out of love for Christ. You see, love can be extravagant, and love for Christ certainly at times should be extravagant in this way. And so we go back and think, you know, examining our own lives, our own actions, our own motives. What have you done in your life out of love for Jesus? Are there actions that you can think back on that you did simply because you loved Jesus? Or perhaps things that you stopped doing simply out of love and devotion to Jesus and a desire to be obedient to his word. It might involve giving, giving money or some other uh, tangible thing in order to help someone else, perhaps out of love for them, but ultimately out of love for the Lord. Or perhaps giving of your time and your energy in serving. And some of you have done that. Uh, some of you, perhaps out of love for Jesus, need to say, how can I express my love to Jesus, perhaps in service to another brother or sister in Christ, or maybe even someone outside the family of, of Christ? But others, if you are serving, you're doing things, but have you ever stopped to ask why? Maybe you've taken a meal to someone in the church, or maybe you've uh, performed some act of service for another person, helped them with a yard or repairs in the house or whatever it might be. Have you ever gone back and thought why? Well, I hope that if you think about it, Maybe you become conscious of doing this, certainly out of a concern to help someone, but the ultimate motive should be you're doing this because you love the Lord Jesus, because you want to honor him, because you want to serve him by serving others. Well, we see Mary come up and, and perform this act of devotion to Christ because she loved the Lord. She, devote, she was devoted to him, and no gift that she could give to him was an adequate expression of her love. So it was an extravagant act. But second, we also want to see that it was a criticized act. We see that in verses 8 through 9. When the disciples saw it, when they saw what happened, they were indignant. They were offended. You know, that, that itself seems a little bit strange. You, know, you might think maybe they would even just be indifferent. Well, that's Strange, you know, or she she anointed him. Boy, she really went overboard with that one. But, you know, it's hers. So, you know, I guess that's just what she wanted to do. They weren't even indifferent. They were offended. They were indignant. They were outraged. Uh, we see their reaction 
this indignation, but then they see, they see the rationale. They say, well, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, on the surface of it, it's hard to find fault with what they said. She could have sold that oil, gotten a lot of money for it, and helped a lot of people with that large an amount of money. Think of all of the people she could have fed. Think of all of the people she could have provided for, uh, purchased things for that they needed. That's a laudable thing. And, as we saw in our Old Testament reading, that is, is an act of obedience to God's Word. God tells us that we are to provide for those who are, who are poor. And uh, as it mentions the seventh year, uh, when debts would be canceled, uh, it says, well, don't think the seventh year is coming, so you're not going to lend anything because the debt's only going to be canceled shortly afterward anyway. Just give, meet their need, provide for them. If it's in your ability to do that, and there's someone here who needs your help, then be willing to give, not expecting to be paid back, not expecting to receive anything in return. So they have scriptural support for their rationale here. There's a couple of problems. The first one is, is obvious because John tells us that there is here a hidden motive, at least among some of them. John tells us, that the spokesman here for the disciples was Judas Iscariot. Okay, booze and hisses, right? No one names their kid Judas Iscariot. Sometimes it was Peter. Uh, Peter would take issue with something Jesus said, or Peter would pledge his loyalty to Jesus, and all the other disciples would pipe up. It was a group thought. It was a group effort, but Peter was the one who took the lead. Well, in this objection to what happened, apparently it was Judas who took the lead and the other disciples joined in. But John tells us why Judas objected. It was because Judas was the treasurer. Judas kept the money bag. Judas would steal from the money bag. Judas was a thief before he was a turncoat. And no doubt Judas thought, boy, it would be nice to have all that money in our little treasury here. I could really um, benefit from having that much money in our treasury. Now, the other disciples joined in, and I think their motives were sincere. Absolutely, that could have done a great deal for the poor. But you see, as Jesus goes on to explain, there's a time and place for helping the poor. But sometimes there's a time and a place for devoting resources to another cause or in another direction. And we don't go to one extreme or the other. It would be tempting to say, you know, we can't spend money, for example, on building a building because we need to give money to the poor. We need to give money to missions. We need to give money to this. On the other hand, there are those who would say, well, you know, we need our money for other things. And somehow we never get around to helping those who are in need. The two are not mutually exclusive, but sometimes the focus needs to be on one. Devotion to Christ, sometimes the focus needs to be on the other. Sometimes extravagant devotion, sometimes practical utility. And as Christians, we have an obligation to both. The lavish devotion to the Lord, as well as an obligation that God's Word places upon us to help those who are in need. 
And this will become clear as we look at uh, what Jesus has to say. But before we do that, let's look at the nature of this criticism. Um, you think, well, would somebody be critical of another for an act of lavish devotion outside this passage? Absolutely. Speaking of building, uh, in my hometown, in my home church, uh, back in the late 80s, we uh, built a new building in a different location. We moved into it in 1990. Uh, I say we, uh, it was getting to be more they because I was in seminary and it was my last days of regular involvement in that church. Uh, but they moved in in 1990. Uh, the church had not been in a, in a new building since 1929 when its previous building had been built. So substantial period of time, and they had not built anything in decades, had not added on any new construction. And they built because of the need for space. They built because of the desire to move where most of the members of the church were anyway. And as the church was being built, letters began to appear in the paper criticizing those Presbyterians for this lavish, massive building they were building out west of town. When there's so many people who need to be fed, when churches should be spending their money on missions. These were letters, no doubt, written by people who belonged to churches who themselves had massive buildings built much more recently than the, the previous construction of my home church. But they were just aghast. This money should be given to the poor. This money should be given to missions. No, we had decided this money should be used to build a building which would further enable the church to grow and be able to give to the poor and be able to give to missions. Criticism? Absolutely. I can remember taking a summer mission trip to Korea and uh, being rather struck to discover that there were people on our team who went that summer whose parents thought they were foolish that they were throwing a summer away where they could have been working, could have been making money, and instead running off to Korea to do whatever it is we were doing in Korea. I was very blessed to have parents who supported me. In fact, my father was, had been, I think still was, chairman of the missions committee in our church. They were thrilled. But there were other people whose parents were critical, that they were throwing lavishly, throwing away an entire summer of potential employment to run off to Korea and do Mission work. Criticism? Today? Absolutely. Just as it was for Jesus and Mary. So it was a criticized act. Sometimes people will not understand. That's why we need to know our own motives before the Lord. But that's why we also need to be prepared for those who might criticize. The third thing we see here is that it was a perceptive act. It was a, an extravagant act, yes. It was criticized by the disciples, but it was also perceptive. Look at what uh, Jesus says now as he answers this in verses 10 through 13. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, Mary saw the goodness of what she was doing. Notice, by the way, Jesus accepts this anointing. He doesn't say, oh, you shouldn't do that. He accepts it. He accepts her motivation for doing it. But notice what they say is a terrible waste. Jesus says is a beautiful thing. Literally, a good work. They called it a waste. Jesus called it good. And Mary's perception involves seeing the beauty of what it was that she was doing. Also, she saw the opportunity, the opportunity to do what she did, because that door was not going to be open much longer. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. You see, this was the opportunity. There was a certain level of urgency here. 
Because Jesus would not be present in the body much longer. He'd be crucified, dead, buried, as we confess. After the resurrection, he would be with them a short time. But the days were passing when they would enjoy Jesus' physical presence there with them, when she could actually anoint his body with oil. You see, yes, the poor are always going to be there. And yes, there's the obligation to minister to them. But in this case, Jesus would not be with them much longer in his body. And for her to anoint his body uh, would not be possible much longer. But she also saw the significance of what she did as part of this perception. Look at verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Not only does she perceive his death, quite possibly she perceives the nature of his death. Because you see, ordinarily when someone died, their body would be anointed and prepared uh, with oils and spices for burial. But with a common criminal who was executed, his body was taken and thrown in a pit with no preparation, with no oil. And Jesus says, she did this to prepare me for burial. Perhaps she foresaw he would die in the way he did. But you think, did she really? Did her perception go that far to understand what was going to happen to Jesus? I think it's quite possible it did. Not that, not that she was clairvoyant or had some understanding of the future. After all, Jesus has already explained what's going to happen. Just because his disciples didn't get it didn't mean no one got it. In fact, earlier in verse 2, Jesus said, The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, a word that would send chills down the spine, a word that would arrest the attention, crucified. It was a horrible thing. It was a ghastly thing. In fact, he really just didn't mention it in polite society. Just because the disciples didn't grab it and understand it didn't mean that there wasn't anyone out there who understood what Jesus was talking about. Now, what about Mary? You know, maybe she'd heard it. Maybe she'd heard it secondhand through the disciples. But I'll tell you this. Mary paid attention to Jesus. Remember when Jesus was in their home. Luke 10 tells us about it. And they invite, him, they invite him in for a meal. And Martha is very busy serving. In fact, here, Martha was very busy serving. John tells us that. That Martha was serving. That's what Martha did. That was her gift. That was her thing. Well, earlier, when Jesus has been a guest in their home, well, as my wife would want you to point out, someone does have to serve and get things done. She really has sympathies for Martha. Uh, but while Martha was getting it done, while Jesus was a guest in their home, what is Mary doing? She had a sister. This is Luke 10.39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Show me any passage in the Gospels that tell us that any of the disciples was listening to Jesus' teaching. Remember the transfiguration. Jesus is glorified there. He's radiant like the sun. And Peter starts talking. And the God the Father steps in and says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I.e., Peter, you know, close your mouth, open your ears. Show me a disciple who listened to Jesus. It says here, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened. 
Did Mary understand? Did she really have the perception of what was going to happen? Yes, I think she did. One, because Jesus said it. Two, because she listened. She thought about what he was teaching. The disciples may not have got it, but apparently, at least to some degree, Mary did. It was a perceptive act. She seemed to understand at a level the others did not that Jesus' end was near and that he was going to die as a common criminal would die. And in love, she was preparing his body for the burial he would soon undergo. And so Jesus says in 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, which by the way anticipates the Great Commission, doesn't it? What she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so it is. And so it's been done because we've thought about her and talked about her and remembered what she did here today. Now, earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Why? As an example of unbelief, as an example of disobedience. Unfortunately, uh, we remember Lot's wife for bad reasons. She became the pillar of salt fascinated every child in Sunday school ever since and should terrify every follower of Christ ever since that we remember her to avoid her example. Well, here Jesus says effectively the same thing. Remember Mary of Bethany. He memorialized the woman far from a woman to be criticized or rebuked. She was a woman to be remembered, and for all the right reasons, her extravagant devotion to Jesus, her willingness to be criticized even in the display of her love for Jesus, and her understanding, her perception of Jesus. Well, let's remember her. But let's not only remember her, but share in her perception. Share in her devotion to her Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would live out of love for you, conscious devotion to you, Lord Jesus. And we recognize that our love and our devotion to you will never match your love for us, your devotion to us and to our eternal well-being, that you would go to the cross and die, be raised up again for us. Father, we thank you for this woman. Thank you for her example. Thank you for the lesson that she is to us. But Father, may she also inspire us. By her example, with love for you, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.